Lord Jesus, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us and your arm is never too short to save. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue by the power of your Holy Spirit to work powerfully uh, in our lives, that we may be able to do that which you have called us to do that we cannot do in our own strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we've been talking about the past couple weeks um, ideas of human identity and have even touched on the sexuality issue, which we'll unpack a little bit more today. Uh, but also the, the big uh, divide that we see in the book of Acts, we see this uh, played out large, uh, primarily uh, through uh, those who identify Christianity with doing, right? rather than uh, Christianity being defined by faith in Jesus. And you see uh, two uh, examples of that set up between the church in Corinth, where they were doing all kinds of crazy things. Uh, Everything from taking one another to court, to causing a ruckus during worship, to uh, being involved sexually with people they shouldn't be involved with, and so on and so forth. Uh, But throughout the entirety of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, never, never does Paul question whether or not they are Christians. Now, he does give very practical advice and application uh, to Uh, those who are uh, bringing the church down. But in the church in Galatia, when Paul writes to the Galatians, he says, you are in jeopardy of not being the church anymore. And what is the reason behind that? Because you're not preaching Jesus alone. You're preaching Jesus plus something else. And normally that plus something else is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, But uh, now today, you know, the, the heresy that Paul was dealing with was uh, being uh, preached by the Judaizers. And those were people who were saying, it's not enough just to believe in Jesus. You also have to keep the Hebrew dietary laws. You need to uh, keep the Sabbath. You need to, uh, if if you're a Gentile and you haven't been circumcised, you need to be circumcised as a male. Uh, You know, that would dissuade a number of men, I think, from conversion. But nonetheless, uh, there are all these things. If you are going to be a Christian, this is what you need to do. Uh, Now, today, I think that it's much more subtle. It's not you have to go through all of these ritualistic things, but what we do encounter are people saying it's Jesus plus something else whatever that something else might be. Uh, You may have encountered this. Uh, People will say things like, well, real Christians would never do fill in the blank. Or real Christians would fill in the blank. I went through a real crisis of faith in college uh, my last year when someone who was very close to me had a tremendous uh, moral failing. And uh, they didn't think anything of it, really, and tried to justify it. And uh, it was very difficult for me uh, to be around them. And I remember being in their car once, and when the car turned on, it was a Christian radio station on, and it really burned me. How could somebody who had done something so dastardly sit here and listen to Shine Jesus Shine uh, while we're going down the road? Um, The only people who laughed are people who have been to Curcio. So, um, uh, but then... um, God began to work on me and help me to understand. Um, you know, the question I'd been asking was, how could someone who says they're a Christian do something like that? Uh, and all of a sudden I realized 
that in many ways I was in the same boat as they were, uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if you've hated your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. I tell you, if you've lusted after anybody, uh, then you've committed adultery in your heart. Those types of things made me realize that my response to them should not be solely judgment. I mean, objectively speaking, what they had done was wrong. Nobody was downplaying that. Uh, but really, I, th- I thought that I was better than they were. You know, I might be bad, but I'm not that bad. Uh, and uh, so actually, they made me look like a pretty good Christian. Uh, and so uh, there are two little clips uh, that I want to show that I feel like really capture um, the Christian life uh, for most of us. Uh, one of them is mildly inappropriate. Uh, so look forward to that. Um, so this is the first one. And it's about sanctification. Okay? So uh, this is what life feels like as a Christian oftentimes. Um, Sanctification is the process uh, that the Bible talks about uh, by which uh, we become holy. So God just doesn't save us from ourselves. He actually imputes his righteousness to us. Now, there are a lot... Stop looking at it. Just kidding. You can't stop, can you? That, that, I hope that guy gets paid a nickel every time it runs. Every time, that'd be great. So, um, okay. Yeah, for, yeah, poor guy, whatever. So... Um, <laughs> A lot of us feel this way, and a lot of people in the church will say, well, the Christian life is about getting better and better. It's about some sort of moral progress where you become more and more perfect as, as time goes on. And in fact, you've probably experienced the opposite. If anything, as time has gone on in your life, you've realized more and more your need for a Savior. So my Uncle David, I love this story, was once asked by one of my knucklehead cousins who's in ministry, Uh, Uncle David, do you find yourself growing in holiness unto the Lord? And he said, I don't find that my my propensity to sin has diminished, only my physical ability to act upon it. (laughs) And so Uncle David understands this. But you know what? For some people, some people, you know, life, life is pretty good, right? Life is pretty good. And these things are amazing. I can't believe that, I mean, my dog would be in California by now. Uh, but this dog is just tearing it up. I wish you could hear the announcer better. This is, the, this is taking place in England. I mean, it's just, oh. Uh, okay. Well, okay, only in church would you see that. Um, okay, well, uh, if you could hear the announcer, which I heard earlier, uh, uh, he would actually say, well, dogs will be dogs. And, uh, and isn't that uh, the truth? That even uh, for many of us, we may be going along in life and things are really great and we've got it all together and then all of a sudden crash, right? Something happens, something comes up, and it might not be a huge moral failing, but you know, one of the things that my family, I grew up, we yell a lot, and that's because there are a lot of us, and if you're going to be heard, you have to yell. So when I yell, it doesn't mean I'm being angry. I'm just 
trying to bully and bulldoze everybody else so that I can be heard. And stop laughing, Lauren. So, um, so uh, Lauren rightfully said, you know, you, you've, you have to stop yelling. And so I have uh, been really uh, good about, now what she doesn't know is every night I yell into my pillow. I'm um, just kidding, I don't do that. Uh, but I've, I've been trying really hard uh, not to yell, and I've been doing pretty well, uh, but relatively speaking. Uh, but then there are those moments where, ah, you know, I, I let myself go, and normally it's in those moments where I'm upset with my kids or I'm upset about something else. Uh, Eva Beard, my assistant, uh, has stopped coming into my office, but for the first six weeks I was dean, she would hear me yell, and she'd come running in thinking I'd be sprawled out on the floor. I was holding somebody out the window, shaking them, and I was like, no, I was just reading my email. So, um, well... So it's not necessarily that you're going to have some sort of moral failing, but if you've lived life every single day, uh, uh, you understand how difficult it really is not to sin. And sin, of course, not just being your actions, but a condition that we're in, and out of those things come the actions in, uh, in our own life. Uh, there's a very uh, inflated view of human nature in our world today, which is basically saying, if you just set your mind to it, you can accomplish anything you want. Uh, th- that would be awesome if that were true. I would love for that to be true. I'd, you know, uh, what would I be doing right now? Uh, probably what I am doing, but I'd probably have a NASCAR thing on the side, um, or maybe a brain surgeon. I don't know. I wouldn't want you, but the fact of the matter is, is that you wouldn't want me to operate on you. So, but even in the Christian life, people think that if you just try hard enough, you can, you can hold it all together. Now, what our culture has done is that not only do they have a high view of human nature, but at the same time, it seems that they have created a culture of apathy where people just really stop caring for one another uh, and, and who they are. I mentioned last week this disappearing middle where you have your close friends and family and then you have your Facebook friends or your acquaintances, people out there. But there used to be in our, in our culture those middle areas like our neighbors, uh, people that, that we would know. And I, I thought that it was just a Washington, D.C. thing uh, because in Washington, D.C., when we live there, uh, people moved in and out every four years. And so if they're going to move in and out every four years, you know, what difference does it make if you get to know your neighbor? And if you don't know your neighbor, what difference does it make um, how you behave on the roadways? All right, that's certainly true of me. Uh, I have uh, definitely laid on the horn uh, to some of you uh, unknowingly. Uh, and Lauren has said, I'm pretty sure that's so-and-so. And I said, well, they should be going and not stopping. <laughs> But turnabout is fair play. A parishioner, uh, I got this text. I don't text and drive, but I got a text and I glanced at it, and it said from the parishioner, you totally just blew through that red light. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, if you grew up in a small town, one of the great things about growing up in a small town is everybody really does look out for everybody. And uh, Jacques Maritain said that community exists for the rescue of person, that the whole community had a buy-in and really cared about, cared about every individual in that community and hoped that they would uh, be able to live out to their full potential in their vocation, 
uh, and their families, uh, and whatever it was uh, that they were a part of. And that just isn't the case anymore. We're all kind of left on our own. And not only that, I know with my kids, you know, you kind of hope the other kids fail, right? You do. I mean, only so many kids are going to get into this school, only so many kids are going to get into that school. And so all of a sudden it becomes uh, a competition. I know that for um, my best friend, he has three daughters as well, and they're all pretty much the same age as, I, as my daughters. And, uh, and we often joke that they're one another's arch nemeses, that um, they love each other, but in fact, they're going to be in competition with one another. And that is a very sad uh, state of affairs that we're in, but I think that it's mostly uh, true. In this current generation that's coming up, and even people in their 20s, uh, they, they take rejection much harder than any previous generation, or at least I should say they manifest their uh, disappointment uh, and um, brokenness uh, in more public ways. It seems to undo them more than in past generations. And yet when it comes to other people, we're pretty apathetic. Uh, we, we look the other way. We really don't care what's going on in their lives. We feel anxious about asking other people, how are you doing? Uh, <clears throat> that New York Post article that I mentioned in my sermon this morning, I put up on Facebook, and uh, a friend of mine um, uh, messaged me and said, you know, that, that article really makes me think that I ought to reach out to somebody that I know. And so I gave him some, some helps with that and, uh, and said I'd be praying for you. And he wrote back and said, I'm talking about fill-in-the-blank, this person, who I know very well. And I just it sort of stopped me in my tracks that I hadn't even noticed uh, that there was a lot of projection going on in this person's life when indeed they were probably struggling uh, mightily. And so in, in a culture that uh, everybody kind of looks out for themselves or at best the people that are immediately around them, uh, there is no middle area. It creates a culture of apathy. Uh, but in addition to that, it means that everybody can self-determine uh, where they want to go in life, what they want to do, uh, who they, they want to be. And uh, things that would seem uh, completely ridiculous to us years and years and years, or not even years ago, a couple years ago, now are pretty normative. Uh, I read an article in the New York Times that was very frightening, um, uh, I think it was in the Post, too, they, they copied it. But it was talking about the number of child marriages that take place in the United States. Right? And what they mean by that are, are people under the age of 18. In most states, if you're 16 or 17, you can get your parents' permission to marry. But if you're, young, if you're 15 or younger, you have to get the court's permission. And uh, now a lot of these records are sealed, so you can't really tell. But what they did release is that there were over a thousand marriages in the United States last year, where that person was between the ages of t one party was between the ages of ten and fifteen. And in almost, I think it was almost ninety percent of those cases, the person they were marrying was eighteen or older. All right. And so, I, you know, I don't know what the courts were, were thinking in that regard or what exactly was going on or, or why that is, uh, but that's a really startling uh, statistic to me to know that there are 10-year-olds uh, getting married by court permission. And the person who, who wrote the article, uh, it's an op-ed actually, um, 
is involved in uh, a ministry to help get people out of the sex trafficking industry. And he said, you know, from my experience, uh, I can tell you that a lot of these marriages are forced marriages, if not all of them, uh, where something cultural is going on or uh, they're being forced into it by their family, uh, whatever the case uh, may be. Now, that seems to be an extreme example, but at the same time, it, it is happening, right? It is happening. And so, uh, but even in the more um, little things, which are not so little, uh, but have not, uh, that are not as big as they once were. I'll give you uh, a little bit of my story. Uh, one uh, is that my whole family is plagued with divorce. I mean, everybody is pretty much uh, divorced. And um, my parents are divorced. My grandparents are divorced. Uh, there's a lot of infidelity. And the only, two, the only couple that, um, that I have in my life that is close to me that is other than one other set of my grandparents, but that have displayed uh, fidelity and monogamy and commitment and actually a living out of marriage vows are my aunt and her partner. Right? That's the only actual model that I have of people who are actually committed to one another and sticking it out and uh, care for one another in, in my life. And so that's something that I've grown up with uh, my whole life. Um, I've always had uh, an Aunt Jane and an uh, Uncle Mary, <laughs> and, um, uh, and they're wonderful. They were just in town actually uh, visiting with my grandmother, and, um, and we had a very interesting thing happen um, in, uh, in Beaufort. Uh, we, um, uh, the church is downtown. I say all this to say this. The church is downtown, and lots of people walk around because it's so pretty in Beaufort. And uh, there's a lady who was a defrocked Presbyterian minister who uh, had become a Unitarian minister. And she uh, and her partner lived in Beaufort, and she was walking the dog around. And I saw her, and I said, well, uh, how's, I was trying to be nice. How's ministry, whatever that looks like in the Unitarian church? And, uh, and she said, honestly, it's really hard. And I said, oh, why? And she said, you know, is Lauren supportive of your ministry? And I said, yes, I think. And, uh, and she said, you know, what makes my ministry hard is my partner doesn't support what I'm doing at all. So I said, well, why don't we grab lunch? Okay. So, um, so we, uh, we grabbed lunch, uh, she and I and her partner, and we had lunch there in Beaufort. And uh, the next day, the next morning, the rector came into my office and said, come here. So I went in, and there was a parishioner. She was seated on the couch, and she was very distraught. And, um, and I sat down, and uh, the rector kind of backed into a corner and said, okay. And I, I didn't know what I was going to get shot, what was going to happen. Uh, but um, uh, this lady said, you know, you went out to lunch with so-and-so and so-and-so. Yes. Now, why would you do something like that? And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, I, it's such a bad witness to have lunch and to share a meal with people like that. And she said, you know, I, I said, well, let me just say, you know, I, I married your, your daughter and now son-in-law. She goes, I know, and that's what makes this even worse. Now, I said, okay, let me get this straight. You, you have a problem with that? And I said, but you know, I, I went out to lunch with your, uh, when they were engaged, your daughter and son-in-law. And she said, 
yes, and they really appreciated that, and this kind of throws everything up in the air. And I said, no, wait a minute. They were living together, but not married. And she said, yes. I said, well, how is that different than my lunch here? And the rector kind of hit his smile, and, uh, and she just kind of looked at me and said, well, I don't know. I mean, she was still upset and, and, and angry, uh, but the bottom line is, is that, uh, like I was saying earlier on, it's very easy for us to categorize people and put them in a box rather than looking with compassion upon people uh, who do uh, uh, need Jesus' mercy and his grace. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't speak out and condone it. You know, uh, one of the things that Jesus um, did in his entire ministry, and you see this in the book of Acts, and you see it in the Pauline epistles, is that uh, they were constantly associating themselves with people that the scribes and the Pharisees would call tax collectors and sinners, right? The people nobody else wanted to associate with. And... Jesus got a bad rap for that. And in fact, those who would be considered the righteous uh, started to leave Jesus' ministry uh, and and began to grumble about him while the sinners and the tax collectors demographic began to grow uh, in his ministry. But Jesus was able to minister to them in such a way that he never compromised the word of God. I mean, after all, he is the word made flesh. But things like when Zacchaeus uh, was up in the tree, what did he say to Zacchaeus? I'm going to your house for dinner. People flipped. People totally flipped uh, when they did that. When the woman uh, breaks into uh, the dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house and begins uh, to perfume uh, Jesus' feet from the alabaster jar, I mean, people were angry about that. But what did Jesus say? She's done a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, it would be self-righteous of me to not say that uh, I am blessed that my sins are easy to hide, right? The things that I struggle with don't necessarily manifest themselves in the public domain, uh, where other people's do. And so... One of the things that we're dealing with in our culture right now is because we have a culture of apathy and a culture of self-determination, how do you speak a word of truth into what is a highly volatile situation and has become almost completely about identity? Let's not kid ourselves. The sexuality issue has little to do with sex and it has a whole lot more to do with identity and who it means to be, what it means to be a human being. And I think it's very interesting that in our culture, we will say things like, well, you know, so-and-so, you know, Jane, she likes girls. You know, we never say, you know, Andrew, he likes girls, right? Nobody ever identifies somebody uh, when it comes to the heterosexual thing. And we've gotten to a place where we stereotype so badly, uh, and this is one of the things that drives me bonkers, is if you see two well-dressed men uh, at dinner on a Friday night at Cafe DuPont, or... Or Colin Reed and I, well-dressed at the Portland City Grill uh, in Oregon a couple weeks ago, uh, sharing a 36-ounce ribeye together and a bottle of wine. So uh, when you see... I'm not kidding. That actually happened. Um, 
but what, what do most people think when they see that? Two gay guys, right? That's crazy. So, I mean, you can't even be friends with anyone without that sort of issue coming into play, which is totally ridiculous. Now, I mean, the ultimate example of this is Bruce Jenner, right? Isn't that amazing? I mean, Bruce Jenner is the guy that every man would kill to be, right? I mean, Olympic athlete on the Wheaties box, just a man's man, and then he married a Kardashian. <laughs> and it really, it really went from there. It did. And so... All of a sudden, you know, you, look, you have the right to change your name. I'm not saying anything about that. Uh, but I think it's very funny that no matter how many operations you have, uh, there's nothing that can take the maleness of Bruce Jenner away. Right? He's always going to be a man. Now, he may look like a woman, but he's always going to be a man. And, but wasn't it interesting that the moment that this came out, when Caitlyn Jenner was on the cover of, um, was it Cosmopolitan? Vanity Fair. All the, res what were the responses? Do you remember what they were all about? You know, why would Caitlyn Jenner wear a dress that looks like that? And who did their makeup and things like that? And I just thought, this is crazy. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, this, you know, be careful what you asked for. Uh, in our culture, he said, you know, I want you to relate to me as a woman. And they did. And they did. And he didn't like it uh, one, uh, one bit. And, uh, you know, there uh, are a lot of things going on in our culture that, uh, that we do need to sort of speak out about and just say, look, you know, we might just want to hit the, hit the, you know, let's pump the brakes a minute. Uh, the other day, Lauren and I were talking about uh, this uh, child who, uh, on their 13th birthday, a uh, little boy, uh, on their 13th birthday, the mother gave the little boy estrogen patches uh, because he wanted to be uh, a girl. And you've all seen the YouTube videos about the little child who's two, three years old and says, you know, the little boy who wants to be a little girl. You know, I I've got little kids. Uh, they want to be all kinds of things uh, that they ought not to be and they don't want to be. Uh, but are we at that place in our culture where we're just willing to stand back and just say to the kids, have your own way. Have your own way. You know, we really do need people in our culture to care enough about other people to put their arms around people and say, hey, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I'm going to walk this road with you. And yes, I don't agree with what's going on here in your life, whatever it may be. But here I am. Here I am. Because the thing that Jesus did in his ministry, why he was able to interact with the Zacchaeuses of the world and um, the prostitutes of the world and uh, everybody in the world, uh, is because he related to people as human beings. That's what he did. He related to people as human beings. He didn't look at us individually and say, well, Andrew's big besetting sin is this, or... Lauren's big besetting sin are these. Just kidding, Lauren. Uh, whatever it might be. Um, uh, but he looks at you and sees you full of compassion and mercy. Now, that doesn't mean that God isn't going to push on the bruise in your life. That doesn't mean that God isn't going to push on the bruise in your life. Uh, but what it does mean is when that bruise is pushed, we need to be a church that gathers around those folks and, um, and really... Uh, loves on them, and, um, 
and ministers uh, to them. So a lot of it is about um, uh, identity. And uh, right now, the church is in an unusual place where, um, especially when it comes to this issue of marriage, um, we're, we're in a minority uh, in the United States. I mean, it's no secret that the Advent holds a traditional understanding of marriage between a man and a woman uh, until death do they part. And so, uh, in spite of the fact that the Episcopal Church does not hold uh, that position, uh, but one of the things that I've I had an interesting conversation with Bishop Sloan once, and um, we were talking about does being progressive on the marriage issue or on any sexuality issue, does that equal greater attendance, especially amongst those people who would agree with your, your standpoint? And the answer is no. The answer is no. And, um, and the reason uh, behind that is that I think that a lot of people are tired of being related to by labels. And so an interview that came out uh, several months ago in, um, in uh, Christianity Today talked about, uh, they interviewed a, a guy who said he was gay, and um, they asked, well, are you going to go to this liberal church? Are you going to go to that liberal church? And he said, I just want to go to church. Right? I don't want to go to a gay church. I want to go to the church because I need Jesus. Right? That's what he wants. And uh, if there was a gay church in the Diocese of Alabama, this would be it. Right? But the thing about it is here is that we do relate to people as individuals, as human beings, who need Jesus just as much as anybody else. And I think that one of the testimonies that we have here is that we can disagree on an issue like this, but Jesus does unite us, and not just in some flippant, uh, superficial way, but in a very real and meaningful way. And now why do I say that with confidence? I say that with confidence because I have a high degree of trust in the Holy Spirit of God, that He will lead us to conviction, that He will uh, strengthen us, and that He will open our eyes up to our own blind spots. I got a call and an email this past week from a girl that I grew up with. I grew up, she, there were three girls in that family, three boys in my family, and we all grew up with one another. And uh, Megan said, um, I need your help on this one because we're trying to leave our church, but our church won't, li- won't let us leave until we have an exit interview. And I was just like, are you in Waco, Texas? Where are you right now? <laughs> and uh, who do I need to call? And, uh, and so uh, they wrote a very nice letter to the church. I read it saying, uh, if it was one of her sisters, I would have said, you probably ticked them off, but she's the real sweet one. And, um, and they just said, you know, God has other things in store for us, so we're moving on. And they said, uh, in a four-page angry letter back uh, that talked about betrayal, that we will not release you uh, and, and give you a, a letter that you are a member in good standing if you try to transfer to another church. And so they wrote me and said, what do we do? And I said, run, don't walk, right? Because this is crazy with a K. And I said, don't even respond to them. I said, you know, it's like wrestling with a pig. You're just going to get muddy and the pig likes it. I said, don't do it. Uh, don't do it. And so uh, she asked me, she said, you know, do y'all do exit interviews? And I said, we do, but here's the difference. We're not trying to check to see if you have a valid reason for leaving the advent, because there are lots of reasons, uh, traffic being one of them, uh, and parking. But what we're looking for in an exit interview is, where are our blind spots? 
Uh, where are we not uh, doing the ministry that we're called uh, to do? Uh, help us understand how we can minister better uh, to our congregation. It's not trying to, to weed uh, them out. And so, one of the things that has to happen in the church and in our culture is we've got to get rid of the, well, and we're not going to be able to in our own strength, but the apathy has to go away. The self-interest has to go away. Of course, all this stuff isn't. Uh, but by the power of God, the church can be one of those middle places uh, whereby folks can come into the fellowship of Jesus Christ, uh, have their lives transformed, uh, and be part of a community of grace and, and worship Him. Now, ultimately, uh, this comes about not through... Uh, making public pronouncements about various things. Uh, from time to time, you have to do that, and we've done that here at the Advent. Uh, but ultimately, if there is going to be any change that takes place, it has to be because of Jesus. It has to be because of a changed heart. Uh, it does no good uh, to tell uh, somebody who is blissfully uh, unaware that they have an issue in their life that they do have an issue. So, for instance, you know, there's a great illustration I've heard time and time again. You know, if there's a guy and he has a blindfold on and he's driving toward hell and you say to him, hey, you're driving toward hell, he may very well say, no, I'm not. I'm driving to the beach. I can feel it getting warmer. It's kind of nice. Looking forward to it. And, um, and you can try to convince him till you're blue in the face, but you remove the blindfold, and what is that man going to do? He's going to slam on the brakes. He's going to throw the parking brake, pull a 180, and he's going to head in the right direction and stop going the way that he's going. But in order for that to happen, he first had to be able to see. He had to have the blindfold removed. And so... These issues that we deal with of witnessing to the culture around us and engaging the culture aren't worth a hill of beans unless you're preaching Jesus and he's changing hearts. Now, I've said a lot of things, and I want you to come back at me, ask me questions, whatever it is you want. can't believe you think we can't see your hidden sins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you remove the blindfold? Yeah, yeah, you can't. Um, and that's not to say that God isn't going to use you as the means by which that blindfold is, is removed. I mean, I think it's such a remarkable... Sometimes it has to come from outside of us, but it can't even come from outside of us in near proximity. Hardest group for me to witness to and to share my faith with, the people I'm closest to, my family. They just can't hear it. There's too much interference. And I don't know if you've ever had this situation. Lauren uh, encounters it uh, often where I'll come home and I'll say something like, hey, I was talking to so-and-so and this is what they said and they pointed out something that I really ought to start doing. And she looks at me and says, I've been telling you that for five years. You know, what do you mean? But it's new to me. All of a sudden, you, you never know what is going to break through, but it has to be uh, the Holy Spirit of God. And, uh, and most people in their Christian testimony will tell you that even before you know, they could... They can look back and see God working in their life. They can see God's hand in their lives, uh, but the blindfold had to be taken off for them to even see that. Really? Are you just afraid? 
Rose and even two years ago. Yeah. Yeah, because right now, I mean, to tell anybody that they need something and they don't perceive it as a need is, is an attack. And they can't help but receive it as judgment. Uh, and yet it's, it's really, it's, it's not. It's not. I mean, one of the things that we're going to talk about, uh, I think on November the 1st, is um, we're going to talk about evangelism, like how to share your faith actually with, with other people. Um, I think evangelism in the South is particularly hard because everybody's a Christian, if you know what I mean. And so they know just enough to get themselves in trouble. Um, but right now the culture has carved out a safe place, which I think is actually a good thing uh, for people to be really antagonistic toward faith. It's now culturally acceptable uh, to be that. But what I've found is that people that are especially hostile to faith, there's a backstory. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, Christianity is just an emotional crutch. Well, I've never met an atheist where that wasn't based on some emotionally high, intense experience uh, in their life. And so, um, so you've got to be able to peel back the layers. And it requires being a really good friend. It means being ill-treated uh, by your friends uh, in order that you might... Uh, and and they, see, they will see that. Like, I yell at you all the time, and yet you're such a good friend to me. And they'll, they'll see that. And so eventually, um, by God's mercy, they'll get worn down enough. Persistence wears down resistance. Really? No one wants a clarification? I was kind of broad in general about things. Lauren. <laughs> in our lives like your aunt um, and the example that you gave and her partner or that woman in Beaufort who said yeah. that woman's the most Christian woman I know and she was like Jewish or something you know yes. those kinds of things yeah. where there is a little bit of a we as Christians maybe aren't getting it yeah. Right. As well. As right. How do you? Yeah. I mean. Well. I mean. That's two understandings of Christianity that we've been talking about. And one is that Christianity is primarily about doing. And so that kind of language creeps into our vocabulary. Where we'll say they're just such a Christian person, like which means what? They're polite. They have manners. They're really nice. Um, and uh, rather than Christianity being about a relationship with Jesus Christ and being self-aware enough to know. Um, that whether it's my aunt or whether it's um, the Unitarian minister in Beaufort or whether it's um, the guy who has totally wrecked his life. I mean, we had an incident in Beaufort where a guy just really became the prodigal son and wrecked his life with drugs and uh, had a wife and kids, and it was a total mess. And, and reaching out and ministering to him, because by the world standards, they would look at him and say, he doesn't deserve it, right? He doesn't deserve mercy. He's, he's getting what's coming to him. And so that's why uh, people were so alarmed because they thought, I deserve Jesus, right? I deserve to have the Jesus time. These people over here don't. But here's the thing about Christianity. If you're a real Christian, which everyone in this room I, it probably is, uh, you know you don't deserve it. And that actually is what makes you more prone to reach out to people who on the outside seem like they don't deserve it, right? Those, because I'll tell you, that's the easiest demographic to preach to. People who know their brokenness. Carl Bart was once asked, what's the easiest congregation that you've ever preached to? And he started laughing and he said, well, there's no such thing as that. And he said, but if I had to say, uh, when I preach in the prisons, he said, because you don't have to convince them they're guilty. 
they know they're guilty, right? And so uh, people, people that have hit rock bottom or are struggling, they want a word of hope. They want, they want to hear about a way out of the situation that they're in. Now, the other thing, too, is that just because uh, they become Christians, uh, it's not an overnight thing where all of a sudden... I remember, I grew up in an area of rural Virginia, and I was a member of the Future Farmers of America. And, um, and they were, it was broken down basically into two gangs. Uh, there were the equine folks, and that was me, and then there were the bovine folks, and that was my brother. And um, they were the ones that wore the corduroy jackets and really got into that kind of stuff, and, um, and we just had a good time. So, uh, but I remember when my brother Michael, who, um, I mean, I'll just say it, he, he's a total redneck, and, um, and I... Uh, I once said that in front of somebody, and Lauren was there. I said, well, I'm kind of a closet redneck. And she said, you're not in the closet. <laughs> so um, Michael, uh, what a knucklehead. But he went off to Young Life Camp one summer and uh, came back, and he said, I'm a Christian. And I don't know why I thought this, but I thought that he would look like all the other Christians in school, where he'd like wear his you know, polo shirt and pop the collar and front tuck and wear khakis all the time and uh, bass wegians with no socks. Well, guess what? His war- wardrobe stayed horrendous. Um, but there's this, you know, the, the idea of cultural Christianity that if you're going to be a Christian, you have to fit into uh, this particular mold. You can't wear this and you can't say this and you can't do this. Um, one of the, actually, the, one of the fastest growing demographics amongst the nuns are not hipsters living in San Francisco, they're people who live in rural America who are actually fiercely conservative but don't feel like Christianity has anything to say to them. And that demographic is actually prime for the pump. Like they are longing to hear a word uh, of hope. So that's actually the biggest demographic that's growing are people who are in sort of these burned-out Christian areas where they associate Christianity with just being nice rather than being saved from any attempt at niceness. Okay, I'll, I expect emails this week uh, uh, for clarification. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.